Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 10 as we continue our study in the book of Isaiah. We'll be looking today at Isaiah 10 starting at verse 5 and going through the end of the chapter. Before we do so, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with the text. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would guide us to it and through it, that our attitudes, even as we open up your word and read it and hear it, would be right, that we would come expecting to hear from our Creator and our Redeemer. And Lord, as we hear it, that you would take those things that we have held on to, those idols that we have created, those sins that we hold so dear, and that you would convict us of them, that we might better serve you, and that you might be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I looked at this text and this idea of Assyria, and Assyria is going to be the main subject today, and the Lord's use of Assyria and then their judgment, it made me think of over the last year, I have really taken up the hobby of woodworking, and really enjoyed that. It's it's a, a nice, peaceful kind of activity that involves putting things together and figuring things out, and I kind of like that sort of thing. And one of the things that I've learned is the importance of a tool called a jig. And a jig is basically a custom tool for a custom job. It could be as simple as a jig that helps you cut a bunch of boards to the same length without having to measure anything, which is always good. Or it could be something very intricate, like helping you taper legs for a table or making a perfect circle and all these different things. The more I've gotten into the craft, the more I realize that the best woodworkers use these kinds of tricks all the time, constantly. It's the best thing about a jig is that they're disposable as well, if you need them to be. You can just build another one. They're cheap. They're built out of scrap, and they're built in just a few pieces, so it's very easy. I build jigs for very specific one-time purposes, then I take them apart and I put them back in the scrap pile. That's the joy of it. It's not the real thing that I'm working on. The real workpiece I take care of, and I really strive to make it right. The jig, not so much. Today's text is about Assyria, and we've been looking at them quite a lot in the last ten chapters. But this one is different because Assyria is both the tool of judgment and the object of it at the same time. The Lord uses Assyria to pass judgment on Israel and on Judah, but then turns his judgment on Assyria herself. Like a woodworker's jig, Assyria is simply a tool used by the Lord for a particular task. They are not the primary workpiece. His own people are that. But he needs Assyria for this time and this particular use. And this may bother us a little bit uh, because it makes us ask hard questions about why the Lord would do certain things. But I think this passage makes it clear that the Lord's judgments are always right and good, as always. And so as we consider this idea, I want to break down the passage into three main ideas. The arrogance of Assyria, the fall of Assyria, and then the rise of the remnant. And so with that, let's look together at the text. Isaiah 
chapter 10, starting at verse 5. Please stand, if you're able, uh, in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 10, starting at verse 5. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against the godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and to seize plunder and to tread them down like mire in the streets. But he does so, but he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kauno like Carchemish, and Hamath like Arpad, and not, is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached into the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom and my understanding... I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found, like a nest, the wealth of peoples. And as one gathers eggs that might that have been forsaken, so I gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened a mouth, the, mo- the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord God of hosts shall send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his Holy One a flame. And it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of the fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, the mighty God. For though your your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord, for the Lord God of hosts will make full end as decreed in the midst of the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in very little, for in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day his burden will depart from your shoulder. And his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. And he has come to Aath. He passed through Migron and Mikmash. He stores his baggage, 
They have crossed over the pass at Geba. They lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galam. Give attention, O Lashath, O poor Anathoth. Madmanah has, is in flight if the inhabitants of Gebam flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. One of the things that we continue to come up against as we go through the scriptures, and this is one of the good things about going straight through books, is because we don't get to miss these difficult issues. This is the idea that God is able to do as he pleases with the peoples of the earth. We've seen that for the better part of this book so far that the Lord plans to judge his own people. That's something that we know. And he will bring judgment on them. And we've seen that he plans to use the Assyrians to do that. And he plans later to use the Babylonians to do that. And today, we see that he plans to destroy the Assyrians after he's used them to do his work. And for some, this may present itself as unfair because it doesn't give man a chance. You know, sometimes you'll hear those words, well, that just doesn't seem fair that he would do that. As if, you know, if... As if they would do the right thing if they were given the chance, you know, someone like Assyria. Or they even go a step further and say something like this. I have often heard unbelievers and even believers say this this sort of thing. Isn't God morally wrong to do that here? Is he wrong to, to use Assyria like that and then judge them? When we stand and accuse God of wrongdoing, we are no different than Assyria who shakes his fist at the Mount of Jerusalem. So we have to be very careful of that. Turn with me to Job chapter 12. There are lots of places that we could go here. This one was one that I picked. Job chapter 12, verses 13 and following. And I'm going to read this. Because I think this passage makes it very plain the way that the Lord deals. Job chapter 12, starting at verse 13. With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away stripped, and judges he makes fools. He looses the bonds of kings and binds the waistcloth on their hips. He leads away he leads priests away stripped and overthrows the mighty. He deprives of speech those who are trusted and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and looses the belt of the strong. He uncovers the deep the deeps out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light. He makes nations great 
and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. He takes away understanding from chiefs to the people of the earth and makes them wander in trackless waste. They grope in dark without light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. What does the Lord do? Whatever he pleases. This is hard, but this is what we continue to come up against in Scripture. To deny it is to deny the very character of our God. The commentator, Barry Webb, who I've learned to enjoy, who wrote a short little commentary on the book of Isaiah, highly recommended. He says this, While God may use evil people to accomplish his purposes, this does not in any way diminish their accountability. We are in touch here with something that we will not fully understand this side of heaven. It is part of a mysterious interplay between divine sovereignty and human freedom. We should, however, grasp it firmly and be profoundly grateful for it, for it will preserve us from either denying the reality of evil or fearing that it will ultimately triumph. Wicked men serve God's purpose by nailing Jesus to the cross. But the resurrection lays on them and on all of us the urgent need for repentance. Very good answer for us to this problem, I think. And with that brings us to the first point, the arrogance of Assyria. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him. It's God who's using Assyria to do his work. He called them the rod of my anger. He calls them, he calls their weapons my fury. And notice what he calls his own people, a godless nation, a people of my wrath. This matches up with what we've read in previous chapters concerning Israel and, and Judah. In verse 6, he repeats part of the name of one of Isaiah's children. There in the second part of verse 6, to take spoil and seize plunder. Remember, Isaiah's child, Mahir Shalah Ashbaz, means to take the, ploil, the spoil and seize the plunder. He sends them down, or sends them in, to trample his own people as if they were the muck that collects on the street. It's a pretty vivid uh, description. And here's the catch. Assyria has no idea that the Lord is behind this. They think that this is their own doing. Look at verse 7. But he, Assyria, does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. He doesn't know that this is what he's doing. He just thinks that he's conquering for his own gain. He thinks that he is the powerful one. They think that it's their idea and that they're going to be the one that's doing it. Look there at verses 13 and 14. This is Assyria saying, By the strength of my hand, I have done it. By my wisdom, I have understanding. And he keeps on going. How, how much he has done and the things that he has done on the earth and to the peoples of the earth. They see themselves as this indestructible kind of juggernaut moving through the earth, crashing about, unable to be stopped by anything. Actually, we get a very vivid picture of that in verses 28 and following, as you see all of these different cities that he just 
runs through, unable to be stopped. And he does stop there, and it says he, he stops as he gets right up to Jerusalem, the city of Nob, and he shakes his fist at the city. What does the city represent? The city of Jerusalem represents God's seat on the earth. God's power being represented there. And Assyria just comes right up to Jerusalem and shakes his fist at the city as if that's just another city that I'm going to run through. Almost as if they're shaking their fist at God himself saying, see what I have done. See what I have accomplished. All the while they are the rod of God's own anger. They are the rod that God is wielding. We read similar kind of, we read similar passages about arrogance in chapter 2 and other places. But here we are reading that about a godless nation. Now granted Israel has been called godless as well, but they don't they're not the people of God. Assyria is just this tool. So this is what we'd expect. It shouldn't surprise us because sin is prevalent throughout the world. It shouldn't surprise us that Assyria thinks that they are their own God, and of course they do. They actually appointed their leader as their own God. The difference between them and God's people, of course, is God's people know what they ought to do. They know what's right. They have the word, and they still don't do it. The Assyrians just act according to their own nature. Man who is dead in sin and knows only sin and considers himself his own God will act this way every time. I think this should help us with the problem that we mentioned earlier concerning man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. Assyria is being used as a tool to carry out God's judgment. That is not their sin. That's not the sin they've committed. The arrogance of Assyria is their sin. And for that sin, they deserve judgment, just like all who have that sin. Before we somehow think that it's unfair that Assyria would be judged, picture them standing in Nob, shaking their fists at God, saying, what are you going to do about it? It's basically what they're doing. It's the same for the guy who lives on the island, you know, that made-up guy that someone wants to say to you, well, that, that just doesn't sound fair. What about someone on an island who's never heard about God? You're right, he hasn't. Maybe he hasn't heard about God because he thinks that the guy in the mirror is God. He looks at all of his handiwork. He looks at the things around him and he says, look what I have done. He's no different than any other person. We all have this innate desire to glorify ourselves. This is called the sin nature. We are born with it. Can you imagine in my Woodworking, the little block, I take this little bitty block and I pin it to another board and I use it to measure boards so I, well, to butt up against so I don't have to measure anything. Can you imagine that little bitty block looking at me after I've cut a bunch of boards saying, wow, look what I just did? That would be crazy. The board can be easily thrown back into the scrap heap or thrown into the fire. I I'm, can do whatever I want to at my own whim with that little board. The tool shouldn't speak to the user. Look at verse 15. Shall the axe boast over him who use with it? 
or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if the rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if the staff should lift him who is not wood. It doesn't make sense for the tool to turn around and say something. And so, in this particular case, that is what Assyria is attempting to do. So this is going to lead directly to their fall. This is the next point, the fall of Assyria. With me at verse 12. When the Lord was finished, or has finished, all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. Note again, this is the Lord's work that Assyria is doing, just like the tool in the hands of a woodworker. It can be put back on the shelf or discarded or whatever. If you were to make this verse match modern bad theology, if you were to try to take this verse and rewrite it so that it matched the current understanding of God's character, it may say something like this. After the Lord watched Assyria destroy his people, he decided that he would use it for the good of his people and Assyria would be judged for their bad choice. This text is plain, however. It's not saying any of those things. The Lord is not watching anything happen. He's doing the thing. Assyria was a tool that the Lord used to judge the arrogance of his own people, the waywardness of his own people and their own idolatry. The Lord was done with that tool. And now Assyria would be judged for their arrogance, which is also a sin. And if we're bothered by that, that's okay. In some ways, we should be bothered by that a little bit. Not by the God of the story, but by seeing our own arrogance in this story. We should be bothered by that. But if we're bothered by God here, it's something that we have to take up with Him. We don't need to reshape God in order to make Him fit into a more palatable image that we can stomach. That's called idolatry. And that deserves judgment as well. And what is the judgment that Assyria will receive? Verses 16 through 19. Therefore the Lord of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors. And under his glory a burning will be kindled like a burning of fire. The light of Israel will become fire and his holy one of flame. And it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. Verse 19 I think really paints a vivid picture. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. If Assyria was compared to a forest, vast beyond measure, what will be left after the Lord is done with them can be counted by a child. That's pretty incredible imagery there. The axe that was wielded by the master lumberjack becomes the trees that he fails in one swoop. And notice, it is a complete judgment If you doubt that, go read history books about this empire called Assyria. It's always used in the past tense. They're no longer around. The land is still there, but the nation of Assyria is not. The Lord had something to do with that. If you read those history books, they're probably not going to attribute that to the Lord, but that's who was there. We'll read more about this event, with this actually the downfall of Assyria, as we read, continue through this book in in coming weeks. But their army was overthrown in a single night. And they were never the same after that. They were routed by their own enemies. Another empire moved in and destroyed them, who was also a tool for the Lord. This is another important thought here. We can't throw this kind 
or we can't know this kind of judgment without the scriptures. I think that's very important for us as Christians. We can't look at a nation, say Hitler's Germany, for instance, and say God used the United States as his tool to judge the proud Germans. We don't know the mind of God, so we can't say those kinds of things. We only know the mind of God when he has given us this kind of information to do that. Years ago, we were in Mississippi when uh, Katrina happened, 2005. That doesn't seem like that long ago. Um, several past, or several popular pastor types uh, said that it was God's judgment on the city of New Orleans. That's, they were so uh, very much convinced that that's what it was, that the Lord had told them that that was what it was. No, he did not tell you anything. He isn't speaking directly to those men any more than he's speaking to me. We don't know why that happened, and we don't know who the Lord is judging directly. This past week, a very prominent female Christian blogger died suddenly at the age of 37. Very sad, left behind young children. Very, very terrible thing that happened. But she regularly threw scripture out and exchanged it for cultural norms, worldly acceptance, this particular individual did. And it might be easy for folks to look at that. And unfortunately, some of my Reformed brethren have done this. And they would say, ah, oh, see, don't mess with God's word. This is what happens when you do that. We can't know that. But instead, we should be repenting of our own arrogance and our own mishandling of God's word. And we have to make sure that we see the other side of the coin here. The idea that God does as he pleases in judgment, but he also does as he pleases in salvation as well, which is actually a very good thing for us. Brings me to the next and last point, the rise of the remnant, verses 20 through 23. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. Though their destruction is decreed, there will be an, a remnant of Israel that survives. Unlike Assyria, God intends to preserve a portion of his people as he always has. He's always done this in the midst of judgment. You don't have to go very far into the book of the Bible to see that. We go all the way back to Noah when he preserved a people for himself. The Tower of Babel. Remember that judgment where he scattered all the people who thought they were something special. And what did he do? He took one of those people who were worshiping other gods at the time and said, you will be the father of many nations, he said to Abram. He took one of those tribes that came from Abram, Judah, as we've already read, Judah wasn't very much to speak about. He judged all the other tribes, but Judah, he decided he would keep around. And he, we're thankful that he did because one came from Judah, our Lord Jesus, who would follow the law and break the curse. Verse 24 is the crux of this whole entire passage. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with a rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. Do not be afraid of those Assyrians because God is sovereign over Assyria, over Egypt, 
whole nations, pagan nations, God is sovereign over. If he's sovereign over all of those people, we can trust that he's sovereign over us as individuals here today. And we see that in verses 25 and following. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as he did when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And as his staff will be over the sea as he, and he will lift it up as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder. Pretty incredible passage there. He delivers his people, directs his anger toward the enemies of his people, and he delivers them from their burden. It might be easy for us to start naming enemies and praying for God to destroy them. You can see that as you read through the book of Psalms, actually. A lot of the Psalms are just that. They're prayers against enemies. And they say some pretty heavy things about their enemies in those passages. Actually, about this particular time during Israel. They talk about the things that they hope God will do to the Assyrian babies and different things that are hard words. But you can understand why they may want to pray those things. We could name nations. We could name people. We could name more abstract things like illness, particular situations in our lives. There's nothing wrong with praying for deliverance and praying for justice. These are good things that God would deliver us from our enemies, that he would even deal with our enemies. But I want us to understand that there are enemies that supersede all the others. And in the defeat of these enemies is where true victory lies. We may have victory over one of these earthly enemies for a time, and that may feel good, and that's great. Justice is always good. But the ultimate justice are when our greatest enemies are dealt with, sin and death. And when victory comes over them, that victory is absolute. These are true enemies, the true burden of humanity, the real reason why Israel is struggling and Judah is struggling and Assyria shakes his fist at God. And they are once and for all defeated by our Lord Jesus Christ. It came at a cost. Read verse 25 in light of the work of Jesus. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to his destruction. My fury against you, the people of God, dead in their sin, will be turned away from you and will be directed to him, Jesus, for his destruction. This is what happened on the cross. The anger of God was satisfied in the destruction of his own son, perfect son. The reason the burden departed from our shoulders is because it was all placed upon him. Every bit of it. The father crushed him because of it. That burden. In Christ, we have been granted the victory that Jesus earned. He's the one that fought and won. And we get to say that we're on the winning team because of what he did. We actually continue to fight against that victory every single time that we sin. We say, no, God, 
that wasn't enough. However, that doesn't change his mind towards us, thankfully. And in that, that, brothers and sisters, is where we have our hope in Christ. That is the hope that we carry with us each day as we face the enemies of this world, whether those enemies be flesh and blood or just the effects of sin, things like illness. Our hope is in Christ, and in Him we have victory. So in conclusion, God does as He pleases, but it pleased Him to defeat our enemies and deliver us through the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So let us live by faith in Him. Let us tell others about whom we found deliverance. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we pray these things, we recognize that we oftentimes are standing on that same hill, shaking our fists at you because we think we know better. And so, Lord, we pray that you convict us of that sin and the others, many others in our hearts. We are arrogant. We are prideful. And yet you love us anyway. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be more like you, that we might serve you, that people might know you, that you would be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.